Today, we actually waste 96% of the data that comes from construction when we take our buildings into operational phase. Out of that 4% that we are actually keeping, 90% of that is unstructured. So just imagine if we had more data points to work with and more insights, what an impact that could have on the built environment and how we use it and what impact that could have in us decarbonizing this built environment. You're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, a new Skenska podcast. We're here to recognize, encourage, and inspire stakeholders in the industry and beyond to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable, resilient, zero-carbon built environment. In each episode, we will be speaking with industry and civic leaders, policymakers, and other champions of change to explore innovative solutions to real challenges. The construction and real estate industries have traditionally been slow to adopt new technologies. However, that is no longer the case, and today, digital innovations and technological advances in those industries are impacting and improving the way things are built and the way they are operated after the completion of construction. As more tools are developed, it will move the industry forward to the goal of zero-carbon construction and sustainable building operations. Today, host Heather Clancy will talk with three leading industry experts who bring three different backgrounds and perspectives to explore these advances and tools and what the future holds for construction and real estate. Our first guest, Brendan Wallace, is co-founder and managing partner at Fifth Wall, and he speaks to Heather about how this space is evolving and the key drivers of change. I'm Brendan Wallace. I am the co-founder and managing partner at Fifth Wall. And for those who don't know Fifth Wall, Fifth Wall is the largest and the most active investor in pretty much all built world technology, which is basically tech for real estate, construction, and hospitality, the built environment. Now, one part of that is what is today called prop tech, which is basically software and information technology for those sectors. But I would say an increasingly large part of it, arguably the largest part of it, is now climate tech for the kind of built economy and the real estate industry, in large part because real estate is the single largest CO2 emitting industry. And so we are the most active investors in materials tech. Got it. And now we know like collectively that the built environment is a huge source of carbon emissions. We could quote lots of stats around that, but it hasn't really been historically a digital on the digital vanguard. Why is that changing and what benefits do you see digital technology and some of the developments you just described bringing for the prop tech sector? I think you kind of look at prop tech as being in some ways like a precursor to what we're now seeing in climate tech for the real estate industry, because real estate is the single largest industry in almost every developed economy. It's typically around 10 to 20% of GDP, but yet It's this industry that's been very slow and late to adopt all technology, regardless of whether it's software or climate tech. And I have some reasons for why I think that occurred, but more or less the real estate industry napped through most of the internet, all of mobile, and woke up around 2016, 2017 and began to adopt tech for the first time. And the first wave of this was prop tech. And we've seen an explosion in the number of prop tech companies some of whom are making aspects of the buildings and homes that we have globally smarter, right? With smart technology, industrial IoT, connected devices, all of that. And I think the real estate industry was just metabolizing the imperative to adopt software when they then were hit with this new reality of actually they need to decarbonize at a pace far faster than other industries that had 
in some cases, decades head starts on them like transportation. And so you can think of prop tech today as being the antecedent, the precursor to what we're now seeing is this inexorable growth of climate tech for the built environment. And so real estate owners, I think, have some have been very front footed about this, but some, I think, have been very reactive to this. And I think where we sit today, though, is that the real estate industry is squarely in the center of climate policy debate, probably to a greater extent than any other industry, even utilities and transportation, which have historically been front and center in the debate. Can you give me a couple of examples of how that debate is expressing itself? Like, where are we hearing this? I think we're hearing it from three different constituencies, all of which have triangulated on the real estate industry. The first is regulation, in particular, local regulation. And I'll talk about that. Second is capital markets. So just real estate is a highly sensitized industry to cost of capital and capital markets have changed profoundly on account of climate policy. And the last is actually private markets themselves, the demand for space from tenants themselves. So we'll talk about each. The first at a regulatory level, real estate in the US and in most countries is taxed and regulated primarily locally, not federally. So that's somewhat idiosyncratic to the sector. And the other idiosyncratic thing about real estate is that you can't move a building. So if you don't like the local regulations here in New York, you can't move the Empire State Building to Texas or to Mexico. You are stuck with those local regulations. What has happened is that while at a federal level, for example, the U.S.'s participation in these big multilateral climate agreements like the Paris Agreement has wavered, depending on whether we have a Republican or a Democrat in office, Nonetheless, most cities are progressive. Most cities have democratic mayors, and therefore most cities are environmentally progressive. And in course, many cities have now enacted local carbon neutrality and carbon fines effectively for the commercial real estate industry. So the real estate industry is now just starting to grapple with an enormous amount of taxes and fines that are imminent, like coming in the latter part of this decade, if they don't invest in the tech to reduce their carbon footprint operationally. That's the first vector. The second vector is capital markets. And this has been, I would say, a trend that's been happening for probably the last decade, but has really accelerated in the last few years. Like large capital allocators, BlackRock and so on, have said, we'll preferentially deploy capital to low or no carbon footprint real estate. And so that's impacting debt costs of capital. That's impacting equity investment. That's impacting insurance premiums. And so for an industry that's so sensitive to subtle changes in cost of capital, this is, of course, provoking changes for real estate owners. And you can just look at any large public real estate company's annual report, and you can see how they're positioning themselves to really be perceived to be at the forefront of sustainability and decarbonization. That's the second vector. The third vector is actually the tenants themselves. Some the largest tenants on earth, some of the most important tenants on earth, companies like Amazon, have publicly committed to decarbonizing. And when they do so, they're committing their scope one, two, and three emissions. And their scope three emissions includes their entire supply chain. And a huge part of almost every industry's supply chain is real estate. And so the real estate industry wants to be able to lease space to Amazon. So they know that they have ever increasing, ever more stringent standards that they have to adhere to in order to lease space to Amazon. So all of those trends have escalated, I would say, not just in the last year, but I would say in like the last six months to, I would say, a very high pitch. And as a result, you're seeing unprecedented action, unprecedented mobilization of capital from the real estate industry to the tech to decarbonize. 
Brendan's observations about the pressures coming from state and local governments as well as tenants to invest in technologies to decarbonize their industry creates a need for those tech tools to get the job done. The driving force behind one of those tools is our next guest, Stacy Smedley. Stacy is the executive director at Building Transparency, an organization that provides open access data and tools to help those in the building industry take action and address climate change. The premier service is the Embodied Carbon and Construction Calculator, known as EC3. This tool allows users to view and compare the embodied carbon of selected materials, manufacturers, and products through a database of third-party verified environmental product declarations, known as EPDs. Building Transparency is a nonprofit organization based in the U.S., and our mission is to provide the free open access tools and data necessary to actionably address, reduce embodied carbon emissions of construction. Yeah. So we're going to talk in much more detail about some of those tools, in particular the EC3 or Embodied Carbon in Construction Calculator in a moment. But I think it would be great to start with a grounding in why embodied carbon is such an important thing to look at when we're talking about sustainable buildings. Sure. Yeah. My journey into really understanding it began when I was actually a sustainability director at Skanska. Over the past, I would say, five to 10 years, the industry started to understand how much more important it is. And embodied carbon as a definition is really speaking to the greenhouse gas emissions, the global warming potential, or kilograms of CO2E that are put into the atmosphere through the extraction, manufacturing, installation, transportation, disposal of construction materials. When we're thinking about how we make all of the products that we use to build buildings or bridges or roads, we have to think about all of the emissions, all of the impacts that are coming from that production, that installation, that transportation. And as we've dug into this now, we're finding that those emissions are actually a big chunk of the impacts. So if you think about global CO2 emissions, it's right now, I think we're at about 11 to 15% of those global emissions are attached, particularly just to this embodied carbon of construction that we're talking about. And then if you actually look at some of those materials that we build with cement or steel, we now know that just the reduction of cement alone as a product, as a material, is somewhere around 8% of global CO2 emissions. If we're building things, we are responsible for those emissions. They're a big part of the problem when it comes to global CO2 emissions that are impacting climate. And there's been a, just a bigger focus on it over the past five to 10 years at least as we started to get to those statistics where we understand the importance. One of the things that I have found the most insightful and helpful as we try to do the work that we're doing at Building Transparency is an engagement, the engagement we have with the manufacturers of the products that we're trying to decarbonize. There's a need for all of us to understand how we make these things, understand the pressure points and the challenges these manufacturers might have to decarbonize like we want them to, and really help them through that more than just requiring something of them, actually being part of the solution, not just the stick telling them to change. So engage your manufacturers, understand how these products are made, and really help them find their way to decarbonize instead of just requiring it. The second thing is I tend to sometimes get stuck in my bubble where I think everyone already understands what embodied carbon is, because I talk to people every day that are trying to take action on it. But for all of those out there that are still trying to understand what embodied carbon is or how to address it, just start. Like there are things you can do without knowing everything that can actually make a difference. 
Embodied carbon is the carbon dioxide, or CO2, emissions associated with materials and construction processes throughout the whole life cycle of a building or infrastructure. It includes any CO2 created during the manufacturing of building materials, as in material extraction, transport to manufacture, and manufacturing, the transport of those materials to the job site, and the construction practices used. So obviously, some customers, some building owners right, might really want that information for a sustainability strategy or for some goal that they have, maybe like a lead certification process. What about regulatory requirements? They're definitely evolving and emerging. Can you talk us through some of the ones that companies might have to address? Like what are, what's foremost in, in terms of the requirements? I'll start with where you started with the private side. So I, I put policy into two buckets. There's private policy and there's public policy. And a lot of this actually began on the private side with companies like Skanska, like I mentioned, making zero carbon commitments, but also the Microsofts, the Amazons, the Metas of the world, saying they're going to get to zero by a certain date and that they're going to include these scope three supply chain embodied emissions. And so we first saw these policies coming from those big companies. Our major partners are the Microsofts and Amazons. If you go and look at our partnership, our partnership logos on the website, where they're setting up policies that require disclosure via environmental product declarations, begin to benchmark their projects to understand where they are from a carbon intensity perspective, and then start to set reduction targets or carbon intensity thresholds, either per material or at the project building level. So that's really where it started. Microsoft was the first company that piloted the use of EC3, a project that Skanska was working on. So Skanska and Microsoft came together to really pilot EC3 in that kind of way. And now there's policies on the public side here in North America that are pointing to that private sector leadership, but also really aligning on those requirements. Do you think there's going to be more regulation? You see it just as a matter of time? I do. We're getting requests of building transparency or questions from other markets that are just trying to get their heads wrapped around this. APAC, many countries in Asia, South America that are pointing to Europe and North America and saying, how do we bring this to where we are? One of the things I always say is that CO2 emissions are not a regional problem. They're a global problem. It's a globally well-mixed gas. It doesn't matter where you are. It's putting going into the atmosphere and affecting all of us. So it really has to be globally addressed. And we're starting to see that. But again, I think if we can get Europe and North America to begin to be the models, but even within those two regions start to align on how we're addressing this, we really are the model for the rest of the world. Our next guest, Henrik Anström, is the Director of Innovation for Skenska Commercial Development Nordic in Gothenburg, Sweden. Henrik and his team have taken a proactive approach to innovating around carbon neutrality. He sees the construction industry starting to move faster when it comes to adopting digital tools like EC3. I'm Henrik Anström. I work for the commercial development stream here in the Nordics, and I'm a Director of Innovations. We realized that in order to meet our goals and ambitions, and more so meet our customers' expectations on us, we need to start to move a bit faster. So we have some key areas where we like to innovate. It's around carbon neutrality, it's around smart buildings, and it's about the future office. And these key areas of innovation, they're actually pretty much tied together because we believe that the future office we are to develop, it is climate neutral, and it's smart. It all needs to happen. So the... Construction and real estate industry has historically not been really known as being at the forefront of digital and technological development. Is that the reality? And if so, why? Construction and real estate isn't really the front runner when it comes to digitalization. I think that's a fact. 
we done lots of things though. So it's not like we're not digitalizing at all. But I think there is a lot more potential that we haven't reached yet. And I think if you look at other sectors, for example, the financial sector, fintech has really had an impact on people's lives. Contech and PropTech has not, not yet, at least. So I'd like to take a couple steps back and have you amplify on things. So you, first of all, you mentioned that the industry has not been at the forefront of the technological, of digital, let's say digitization. And again, you mentioned some of the reasons why it has not been, but where has it been moving forward? I think the changes that we've seen in the last 10 years is driven that the technology is available. And we realized by embracing the technology, we can make our lives easier in our different projects. So it's been very much driven. It's coming from within. We see that it would enhance our performance. And it's also driven by younger generations entered our workforce who knows how to make the best use out of this new technology. So we're definitely moving ahead, embracing this new technology. Why we haven't gotten so far to the very end and to the great greater implementation, I think is because we haven't seen new competition kind of disrupting the place. We haven't really so far seen customers pushing the demands and not yet either seeing the regulations really pushing us either. It's more for our own benefit we've been digitalizing so far, but we see starting to change within all these areas. Can you give me an example of how a digital twin has contributed positively to a project that's looking at sustainability? Like why would you, why would this be important in shaping a sustainable building? When designing a building, if we can connect tools that gives us the carbon intensity of different materials, we make, can make sure that we design the building that has the least carbon footprint as possible. So these technologies and these new softwares are now entering the marketplace. And I think they can make a big change in the environmental performance of the built environment. What other digital applications or technologies are important for the concept of moving towards a sustainable space? And let's take this in two components. Let's start first with development and construction. What other technologies, digital technologies, are important for moving us into the future? Building information modeling. So it's taking all the information that goes into to the buildings, the drawings, the specs, all that into a model, a virtual model they can actually walk around in to understand exactly what you are to produce and build. To this model, you can tie your schedule, you can tie your cost estimates, you can tie your carbon. BIM is really a tool for building virtually what we are to build physically on beforehand. So by doing that, we can really iterate and try different ways of producing and building our projects, making sure we get it done the best way possible. The best way possible when it comes to carbon, to quality, to cost, and so on. So it's a great tool for us to make sure that as construction really much is doing, as we say, pilots every time, because every product is unique, it's a way of kind of testing and doing crash controls of our products before we get started. So it's a really good way of understanding exactly what we are to produce and go in and check details in this virtual world 
you can see things, okay, is this ending up the way we want it to? Maybe not. We might tweak something or change a wall or change the systems because we're not producing the energy performance we'd like to see and so on. So we test all the different things virtually before we go out in the physical environment to build it. So BIM is a useful tool to test and experiment with a virtual model. But Hendrik also talks about taking the next step and develop the BIM into a virtual twin model designed to reflect the physical building in real time during the production phase. That data is more interactive and track the changes throughout the project. He also talks about a twin, meaning a digital twin, which is a virtual model designed to reflect a physical object that can be used to generate valuable insights by running simulations to study performance issues. If we turn it into a twin, we will catch everything that happens along the way when producing our project. So in the construction phase with a twin, we can actually get this somewhat to a time machine. So we can learn and understand what happens if we do this or if we do that. And we can learn from different projects, making sure that we get more effective, both when it comes to material use, but also energy use and everything else in our different projects. So that's really what we see happening is all technologies enabling more features and more use cases to be implemented in our projects. What digital technologies are having the most positive impact in the operations phase? Really what we start to see is that we are seeing customers demanding to get more insights. And especially after COVID, we want to feel secure in the built environment. So we're asking for insights. How is my building performing? What is air quality within my building? But also, especially today with the energy prices is skyrocketing, how is my energy performance? Can I get insights on how I use my building? Might there be different ways of using it that I can reduce my energy usage and so on? So it's a lot about understanding how do we actually use our building and what can we do to enhance the user experience and then the performance when it comes to energy and air quality in this built environment? Like Henrik, Brendan sees great potential in new building technologies, including digital twins. I wanted to go to the topic of digital twins, right? So digital twins are something that gets thrown about a lot, especially with respect to the construction phase of a building. If we use these materials, what will happen? If we model our factory in this way, what will happen? If we use this approach? But they're obviously a topic that a lot of people are hearing about with respect to, especially physical assets, like this asset. I know processes as well, but to what extent do you feel like digital twins are important for the construction phase of a building's lifespan? I would say they're very important. And the reason is modeling different scenarios of different materials and different building systems and different operational use cases is very important to do a priori in the development phase of a real estate asset. I would say it's equally important to continue to do so at the operational phase because the use cases of real estate can change quite a bit. You need to look no further than all of the empty office buildings we today have in New York City and many major metropolitan areas to recognize that if we built a digital twin that contemplates only an office use case, we might not have the right use case long-term. And we're going to be changing many of these assets into being multifamily buildings or potential alternative use cases. 
So digital twins are important at the development phase, but also at the operational phase. And I would say it is absolutely a critical piece of digital infrastructure that the entire real estate industry should be investing in for every real estate asset class in every geography across every possible use case now and in the future. It's an important part of the solution, but there is only so much that software can do. So digital twins provide information that's really important, but all of the hard work around decarbonizing relates to the infrastructure at the real estate asset itself. So the bulk of where our climate fund has gone is into the actual hardware, whether that's materials at the asset level, whether that's renewable energy and electrification at the asset level, whether that's smart building technology and industrial IoT at the asset level, but it's actually atoms, it's physical stuff that's going into these buildings or replacing things that are already in these buildings. And that is really the core investment dollars and the largest category of spend in decarbonizing real estate. Another area that Fifth Wall is looking into is how the real estate industry is going to replace gas stations. As the world turns to electric vehicles to reduce carbon emissions, the real estate industry is scrambling to keep up with the demand for EV chargers. So can you give us an example or two of some companies in your portfolio that are really helping generally reduce energy consumption or really addressing sort of the carbon emissions of a building operator, one that may be considering how their infrastructure supports electric vehicles as an example? Yeah, so that actually is a very specific example of where there's an enormous challenge, but also an enormous opportunity for the real estate industry. I would say the scarcity of EV charging availability in existing real estate assets is obvious today. We are producing an unprecedented number of EVs, and we don't have enough spaces to charge them inside real estate assets. And the reason that's so important is that effectively, the real estate industry is going to consume or subsume the gas station industry because all EVs are going to be charged under roofs inside real estate assets. Now, the problem is that we need many EV charging spots, and we need to be able to deliver that EV charging capability at the lowest cost possible. And there's a debate today over what kind of chargers you need, whether you need level three chargers or level two chargers based on the particular real estate use case. So we looked in particular at multifamily, and we determined that multifamily needs slightly slower charging, or it doesn't require super fast charging because people are charging their cars overnight. and the issue, therefore, is can you deliver a low-cost EV charging solution across multiple spaces inside multifamily assets and deliver that in a way that is advantageous for real estate owners? And we invested in a company called Loop. Many of these multifamily owners do not have an EV charging partner today, and already they've begun deploying Loop inside their assets. Now, that in turn necessitates new demands, in particular on batteries and stationary batteries at the asset level, because to store as much energy as you need to power multiple EVs charging all overnight, you need a lot of energy storage capacity. So we're actually investing both in EV charging and batteries at the same time, but structuring these pilots and large-scale deployments with our real estate owners across the U.S. Climate tech tools for the built environment are getting more plentiful and more efficient. Henrik has some ideas about the positive impact those tools and technologies will have on construction in the short and long term. 
what would you say are these short-term benefits or long-term benefits? Like, how does that play out? I imagine, you know, you do have to make a, a justification for putting these technologies in place. So how is that done? I think this is tied both to short-term and long-term when you look at the construction projects. But I think if we can take BIM to a twin, will we get insights from a twin so we can start to predict and prevent product deviations in relation to progress? So we can actually act upon things as we go in the different projects if we have this technology in place. We will be able to actually go back in time and track certain deviations and make sure that we take better, more sound decisions in products moving forward. This, I think, you can have short-term wins, but more so in the long-term, if you collect all the data from all these different projects, that can make a big impact over time. If you look at the operational phase, there are a lot of different use cases we can unlock by collecting and understanding structured data better. A given one is, of course, energy. Energy follow-up, for sure, but also energy optimization. But we can also, by understanding and collecting data better, be more effective in the facility maintenance of the different buildings. And by understanding also how the buildings are utilized and occupied, we can get to solutions where we can enhance the occupier experience of our buildings and the efficient use of our buildings. What would you say is the adoption of these technologies? Is this something that most real estate and development construction and development companies are doing or using right now, or are they still pretty much on the fringe? There is a tight connection, I see, between sustainability and commercial benefits. It's obvious that if you save energy, that will save you money and also saves carbon. But I think by building and creating sustainable buildings and solutions, that will help our customers to attract and retain talent that will help them meet their carbon and climate targets and so on. But I think that if we can save data and context in a better way, we can actually use that to decarbonize the built environment. We are 40% of the issue across the globe when it comes to carbon in the construction and real estate industry. If we can start to collect and analyze and understand the data from our buildings in a better way, we can start to make great impact. Today, we actually waste 96% of the data that comes from construction when we take our buildings into operational phase. And out of that 4% that we are actually keeping, 90% of that is unstructured. So just imagine if we had more data points to work with and more insights, what an impact that could have on the built environment and how we use it and what impact that could have in us decarbonizing this built environment. Sometimes companies make changes that have a positive impact on reducing their carbon emissions simply because people ask them to. Stacy calls these changes low-hanging fruit. Can we estimate or can you estimate what impact in terms of CO2 savings EC3 has had so far? Do you know? I can give you an example. We don't because we're trying to be very open. We only get anonymized results from projects when a user decides to do that and publish it publicly. So we don't mine the data where I can go in and say we have this many projects with this many emissions reductions. But we do have one one really good case, and that's here in the Seattle market where I sit, which is really where EC3 started with that Skanska Microsoft partnership and pilot. We have seen the 
average emissions from the three major concrete suppliers in this market reduce by almost 20% in two years, just generally. So they had EPDs they published when we first started, and then Skanska, Microsoft, others in this market started asking for EPDs, competition happened, and now they've reduced basically the concrete mixes they provide to anyone by that much. They've done things like go to type 1L cement and other things to just reduce and aggregate the emissions of their products. So I think I can say with confidence that by using EC3 and by building it into your design and procurement processes, there is somewhere between, I think, 20 and almost 50% of emissions reduction possible per project. So we take 33,000 users. We have about 3,000 projects in the tool. You can start to wrap your head around the big numbers we're talking about. And it amplifies past that project because it just then becomes products that are available to market that are lower carbon for anyone. But that scrutiny is what inspired those companies to make those changes in that market. It's true. Concrete's an interesting one. So I guess it's different per material categories, but concrete's really interesting because it's the cement that typically is the multiple, that is the crux of the emissions for a concrete mix. The concrete suppliers are master chefs where they're baking this concrete cake, this ready mix cake, and they're putting in sugar and flour and all the things that you need to make that cake exactly what was specified. If you tell them to make a low carb cake, if I go back to that food analogy, they know they can replace more of the flour to get rid of those carbs. And so they know in concrete mix, they can replace more of the cement or they can look at alternative cements or they can push that cement replacement just a little bit farther and still meet your performance requirements. It was just that nobody was asking them to. When I first sat down with them in Seattle, they said, of course we can do this. We just, no one's told us they wanted a lower carbon mix. We're gonna pick the one off our shelf that we use on every project. But if you want us to reduce carbon emissions, we can go optimize that mix for that purpose. I'm going to go back to the one of the things that we were chatting about right at the beginning, which is as more project leads and project owners and architects require environmental product declarations, how do you expect that that will impact the emissions reductions from embodied carbon? Do you think that's really, it's this transparency, it's asking for that information that's really going to get us to where we need to go there? It's the first kind of low-hanging fruit phase. The first thing that was like the aha moment is where we all figured out if we just turned the light switch off, turned our lights off, we could save all of these energy emissions because we weren't using all that energy. It was so simple, right? Just turn your lights off, unplug your laptop. That's where we are with embodied carbon. If we just have the transparency, there are these big swings in emissions for products that exist today. And if we all start specifying the lower carbon ones now, that's that first swath that will actually start to reduce is let's just go make more of the low carbon things that we have. I think that's somewhere between 30 and 50%. We've done modeling for some of the policies where that's where we said just transparency is a 30 to 50% kind of catalyst. Beyond that is where we need the thresholds and limits and incentives and funding where that lowest 20%, there needs to be competition for more innovation where we actually start getting to cement alternatives or going from going to hydrogen for steel and the things that actually take investment by the manufacturers to push and change. That will be what gets us the second 50%, gets us close to zero. So... What does the future hold? Henrik says there are both challenges and opportunities ahead. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball. So what trends do you expect in the years ahead with respect to digitization of this industry? What's ahead? Working for commercial development, I can see that after COVID and entering an area of hybrid work, there, of course, are some challenges, but also opportunities. I think more so than leasing space, our industry, the real estate industry, 
can see an opportunity in creating more digital solutions and offerings to our customers. We can provide solutions that would help our occupiers to find how to utilize their space, make sure that they utilize space better and create space that enhances more innovation and creativity. We can provide our customers with solutions that will help them nudge when it comes to energy performance. That will help them and us to decarbonize the built environment. So there are many new use cases that has come from this new way of working, for sure. Also, the health aspect, we see certifications like Well has entered the market and is really now being embraced. And you can see that also in the well system that it requires more data, more insights from our buildings to see that we create a built environment that enhances wealth, but also we can, through data, help our clients and occupiers to embrace a more healthy lifestyle and a healthy way of occupying our different buildings. Everything from how they move in the building to what they eat when they are at the office. So there are a lot of things that I think will change in the future. So what developments would you personally like to see? What gets you most excited? Today, everyone is trying to claim their space when it comes to providing solutions for energy efficiency and decarbonization. I think we should try to create a space for everyone where we can come together to do this industry-wide. In order to do that, we need to have an ecosystem. And what that ecosystem really is, is that we got to agree upon standards, protocols, and language in our buildings. So the data that we are collecting, which hopefully is going to be more than that 4%, we've got to standardize that and structure that better to create the platform that would provide the ecosystem so we can come together and together then decarbonize the built environment. Stacy sees a future where global policy drives action through transparency requirements to accelerate carbon reduction activities. So how do you see this field evolving in the next few years? Put your predictions hat on and tell me where we're going. I think we're going to see more global alignment, more global policymaking, more regulations globally around this. I'm really hopeful based on the work we're doing at different tiers of that. There is going to be a push for harmonization and alignment. So we're being consistent with how we're requiring the transparency, what the EPDs must include, what the thresholds are. So we're working really hard to help promote and support global alignment on embodied carbon policy. That'd be my first one. The second is, I think, just this upswing in the need for education and professionals that understand this stuff. There's a huge push right now to come out with really good content to help people become proficient in LCAs, EPDs, all those three-letter acronyms I mentioned. We need help to get more people educated to be able to be the ones that are supporting the policies that are coming. And I think there's going to be a big movement towards creating that. I hope there's going to be more kind of college-level programs that actually address this where we can actually graduate folks that have this as a job opportunity, a career opportunity. And what role do you see digital technology, tools like your own, playing in enabling those things? What I've seen through experience now is digitization of data and standardization of that digital process is like the backbone, the foundation for all of this being possible. If you can free up the data and free up the format of the data in a way that allows it to translate into multiple different platforms and tools 
you get the alignment on the data, but you also let all the innovation happen on the use and not the curation. That's really the role we're trying to help fill is that open curation of something that can then really catalyze all the innovation on top of it, whether it's policymaking, tool making, etc. So I think without it, we're not going to get there. Brendan has an interesting theory about sustainability in the built environment, and it revolves around cities and their leaders. I think where we are headed is that this is a theory I have. Local regulation, and in particular mayors, are going to become incredibly important in driving the energy transition in the United States and globally. And that's because real estate is taxed and regulated locally. And most cities are progressive in the US and globally. So you have a dynamic whereby the most progressive jurisdiction cities are where most of real estate value is concentrated. And cities obviously have the right to tax and regulate any real estate assets within their domain. And it's very difficult for the real estate industry to change locations. And so all of those forces are converging on, I would say, a dawning reality for the real estate industry that mayors are going to be one of the most important propulsive drivers in the energy transition. And I don't think that had dawned on many people previously. That's really quite amazing to think about. So how does that translate into technologies? Any predictions? In terms of what local regulatory change will do is they will bend the cost curves for retrofitting, meaning they'll make otherwise unviable technologies viable because real estate owners will be confronted with a carbon fine or a carbon tax that they do not wish to pay. And that will change the ROIs and the payback periods of different kinds of technologies. You've already seen this with the IRA and the infrastructure bill at a federal level. But what you're about to see is that this will start to take place at a local level. So real estate owners will actually do the math of what will it cost to replace my HVAC system or replace my water coolers or resheath the building with new smart glass? Or what are the fines that I will pay if I don't do that? And as those fines increase and become more imminent and more likely to be paid in the next five years, real estate owners are going to be more willing to make those critical investments into the tech hardware and software to decarbonize. I know that your company gets lots of pitches and you have lots of new ideas that you're evaluating on a regular basis. What do you want to see more of? Great question. I think the thing that I would love to see more of is materials technology, actually. And even though it doesn't have the same aura around it, let's say, as software or digital technology, it's critically important. When you think about the carbon impact of the real estate industry, about 30% of it is the embodied carbon footprint of buildings and homes. And the concrete we're pouring today, we can never unpour. The drywall we're putting up today, we can never unput up and probably never dispose of. So when it comes to materials technology, I think we've seen a lot of innovation, but I would love to see more. Everything that we make buildings out of can become more efficient, both from an embodied carbon perspective, but also from a functional longevity perspective in terms of contemplating many of these carbon fines and carbon taxes and much of what we just discussed around having buildings become smarter. So I'd love to see more investment in materials technologies for the real estate sector. 
There are reasons for optimism when it comes to the construction and real estate industries accelerating the adoption of new digital tools and technological advances that help reduce carbon emissions at the atmosphere. There is much work to be done, but the foundation is there for our built environment to be a key factor in creating a sustainable future. Thank you for tuning into this episode, and a special thanks to our guests, Stacey Smedley, Henrik Onstrom, and Brendan Wallace. To learn more about digital innovation and technology, and for links to any resources mentioned, head to the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Then join us every episode as we continue to explore shaping sustainable places. This podcast is brought to you by Skenska. We're a world-leading project development and construction group using knowledge and foresight to shape the way we live. Go to skenska.com to learn more. That's S-K-A-N-S-K-A dot com. Thank you.